Hey everyone, before we get started this week on the new episode of Avenger Bros, just want to send a quick shout out to our friend and listener Warren Maneric. He donated some audio equipment to us, so we're going to sound better than we ever have before. And if we don't, for some reason, I apologize, we're working on the audio, I'm sure we'll fix it by next week. Hello, and welcome to Avenger Bros, your weekly podcast about discipleship, biblical literacy, and historical context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And uh, Don, when I say discipleship, can you give me a brief one-sentence thing about that? Uh, Discipleship is just this place, uh, this space in which uh, you begin to better align your believe with your behave, or your behave with your believe. Okay, yeah. Uh, biblical literacy? Just the idea of knowing uh, the fullness of the scriptures, not just uh, piece and parcel of it. And what about historical context? Without historical context, we're just kind of guessing uh, what things mean. And uh, obviously these things were said to a certain people at a certain time in a certain place. And the better we can understand how they would have heard these words, the better we can understand how they apply to us. And so that's what we try and do here every week on Avenge Bros. Attempt. Attempt. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this week, we are continuing our series on talking about the Torah portions. And uh, Don, what are we talking about with them uh, this week? So this is the second portion of the year. And so this, is, uh, this portion is called Noach, N-O-A-C-H, which is just the Hebrew transliteration of the uh, what most of us would just say Noah. And so it's the flood narrative uh, followed by the uh, Tower of Babel story or the Tower of Confusion story, if you will. Yeah, and then it ends with a little cameo of Abram. Yes, yes. And then uh, the next session we will spend more time with Abram. Yeah. So what this week in the readings do you want to focus on? Well, I think, you know, th- these are both like primary Sunday school, uh, you know, like bust out the flanograph uh, stories. So uh, I think we could go with either. And I think really it's important for us to kind of have a both and with the the flood narrative as well as the Tower of Babel. So uh, I think I think first of all, George, as you know, I like to do, I like to ask the other person or persons with me, you know, how have you read or heard these passages taught and maybe just start with the flood narrative uh, so we have a sense we can kind of set some groundwork from where we're going to go yeah um so with the flood narrative you know i was always this is one of those stories that i don't ever actually remember learning in uh sunday school so with a lot of wow well so with this story and uh the tower of babel i it's something that's just always kind of been there. Okay. Um, and so I don't remember the first time I actually heard them. Uh, and, it, you know, but I remember the children's study Bible that I had, you know, that showed all the animals with smiley faces. Right. And well, that's because they were getting on the boat. They weren't screwed like the other animals. Yeah. So of course they were smiling. Well, my favorite, looking back on some of the children's Bibles that I had, like there were pictures of two male lions getting on the boat and not 
<laughs> you know, right, so not a lioness produce. and a lion. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But um, you Noah know, was very progressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the first time I I connected the the Noah story to something that was outside of what I kind of culturally learned was I was a huge. I'm still to this day a huge fan of Gary Larson's The Far Side. Sure. And um, there's this illustration. There's this comic that he did where you see two of every kind running towards a rocket ship, and the NASA security guard says, Larry, we have a situation down here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, um, which, it, you know, it, so I remember, oh, that's the Noah story. Um, but, yeah, it was always just like this cute idea of, you know, there's this flood happening and Noah and his family were good and everybody else was bad. And then and they got this big, awesome boat. Yeah. Get out of Dodge. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was pretty much it. Um, you know, it wasn't until probably my hardcore evangelbroing days that I actually realized that there would be body parts or bodies floating in the water yeah, and other animals and just, you know, potentially down trees, you know, just like this idea of and just the stench, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole scene is, I mean, about as gruesome as you can imagine. Now, you know, in all fairness, I don't hold this as a literal uh, story. And so for me, those those parts of the story I still think are interesting because they exist in the storytelling format, right? But, um, you know, just to imagine and to think of, like, just the smell, the scene. In fact, the rabbis said that the only reason Noah was told to put a skylight in the ark or a window in the ark was uh, so when he was frustrated or upset about his situation, he could look out the window and see all the death and decay <laughs> and everything and be reminded that he was better off uh, instead of being angry. He could look out and be you know, put back in his place of he's got it pretty good. Wow. Um, I did not know that, but it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I man, I'll never forget when um I think this may have been after you had left New Harvest. Um but one of the things I, so I had taken over the children's ministry there. So um, the church that we had both worked at. Yeah. Yeah. The last time uh I was on staff at a church, yeah. Uh I had taken over the children's ministry and they're like, "Well, what do you want to do?" I was like, "Well, why don't we you know, the classic thing to do is paint murals right on the walls." They were like, yeah, we can do, you know, this story, this story. And I was like, yeah, just make sure we don't forget the bodies floating outside of the ark. I, that probably goes over well. Oh, you know, actually, it killed with one person. Nice. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. So anyway, getting back to this, though. But real quick before we move on, uh, that church that you're speaking of, uh, where we eventually put a food pantry, there was a wallpaper in that room. So you talked about the two lines, and on this wallpaper— uh, on the ark was a single unicorn. Um, what? Yeah, so I always thought that was funny that uh, somehow a unicorn snuck onto this ark. And even though when I grew up, I heard that unicorns were, were real, they just didn't get on the ark. Oh. Um, and there was a couple other mythical creatures uh, that supposedly didn't get on the ark, and that's why uh, they don't exist anymore. And I was like, well, if only one unicorn got on the boat, that also explains things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Until they show up later in Harry Potter, and then 
I don't know what to do with that. Well, you also don't know what to do with Harry Potter. So. That's true. Okay. Anyway, so um, yeah. So the the arc story was always just this kind of thing that was in the background. And then when I started learning world religions and looking at different creation stories, you know, you see the Tiamat story and you, you see that the... Gilgamesh. F- yeah. The flood narrative is something that is common within... Yeah, of course. Multiple world religions or even old world religions. Yeah. And so I kind of didn't know what to do with this flood narrative. And I think that that's fair for most people who are kind of stretching their legs outside of traditional evangelicalism over the last 30, 40, 100 years. Right. We don't know what to do with this. Of course. Because we see, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, God fashions clothes that fit Adam and Eve and sends them out into... Addresses the trauma. Yeah. And here we have, you know, sin being so terrible. And we also have the Nephili and the children of God that breed with women who are the heroes of old right which the text tells us um but then we have this world that's so corrupt god regrets creation what a powerful statement too in that text right uh we see that in what uh chapter six i think it's like verse seven or uh eight right right as this passage is beginning to start this new portions and it says you know and god regretted having ever made humankind and I just think that that, like, I never, growing up in the church, I never was presented that verse in such a way that it's I, it sat with me, right? And that's such a an interesting insight into God, right? That, yeah. That God in some way regretted. The language around that is in some way that God even repents for making humankind, right? This this picture is so fascinating and you know we just can't wait to get to the boat and so we we skip this part so yeah let's talk about that moment where god shows very human emotions you know we all have regrets on things that we did some of us who created children might have regrets of making them from you know like in in the moments of most frustration um so is it that god had human emotions or that when we have regret we have god-like emotions well it would probably be when we have regret, we have God-like emotions. Just like, you know, when Eve and Adam take part in eating this fruit, they feel shame. The first thing, that when they become like God, the first thing they feel is shame. Right. And through, you know, and we see this throughout the text, but um, God, we, we, when we're trying to talk about God, you know, we use very human language. And we attribute likeness, human likeness to God. Yeah. And we see that a lot throughout this part of Genesis. Sure. So. But I would say that God is is emotional, right? Until we, until we, uh, we have that moment in the garden where, uh, you know, Adam and Eve become more like God and uh, feel shame. I don't. I can't think offhand of any spot where we see emotion in humanity, right? Uh, it's not until that moment that we start to see emotion, and we see. Uh, so, to me, I just wonder. You know, God is love. That's that's an emotion. Uh, God becomes angry. God regrets. God 
uh, remembers uh, even. And I realize that that's not an emotion, but the Hebrew there is not only just remember, but also then to do something, react maybe is a better way. And so God reacts to a memory, which I would argue is in a lot of ways emotion. And so we just have a very emotional God, which is interesting because we often think that's in some way anthropomorphizing God. So yeah, I think that what what maybe we need to be thinking about is when we talk about emotions, maybe this is us actually being more like God. That when we experience emotions as humanity, like even when Adam is naming the animals, right? Uh, when God sees that there was nothing that was suitable for a partner, there's no emotion implied in uh, Adam at this point, like no disappointment, no sadness, yeah. no fear. But God's the one that names it as it's not good for loneliness or to be alone. God's the one that names that emotion. So to me, I just wonder how much, uh, and it's a shame because I don't know about your experience, George, but growing up in the church, uh, particularly women, were often spoken down to for being too emotional uh, and that we need to be less emotional about things, including our own faith, and that if we make emotional decisions, yet God constantly throughout the text is making emotional decisions. I would argue this entire flood narrative story is an emotional decision by God. I think that you would be hard-pressed to find anybody that would disagree with you on that. Oh, I'm sure I could find people to disagree well, with Well, uh, I mean, but if you're if you're taking the stance of God regrets and therefore God sees that there's one family that's okay, God wipes everything and everybody from creation. Yeah. That's an emotional response. I agreed, but I I think for a lot of people they see it because it technically uh, this is a measure for a measure type thinking, right? That it's an eye for an eye. Though, uh, if we uh, continue down our Torah study and we get to the section of eye for an eye, we can spend more time on it. Even that isn't quite as uh, uh, retributive justice as what we want to make it be. Um, and so this the story, I think sometimes people can make it that it's a measure for a measure and that the people deserve this. And so this was just a logical thing god had to start over um so i don't know what you know but i know a lot of people feel that way what i do think is important for us to look at is is not so much the the flood having wiped out humanity uh as and i think we get caught there right we want to we want to read this and then we want to judge god for a genocide this is where maybe I get off a little easy by saying this is more parabolic or metaphorical, that it's not actually a historical story. Yeah. What I would argue is if we're reading this as a, a method of storytelling, of communicating, God looks at the world that he created and begins the process to uncreate it. Right. Okay. So the flood narrative is the reversing of the creation narrative. So in one and two, you have this creation narrative where you have uh, the water from below and the water from above uh, being separated. You have all this separation, the land being separated from the water, and now you have an unseparating. And you have 
uh, God breathes life into humankind and the breath of life is removed. The animals are drowned. So all of this story, if you think about it, in the Noah flood is is actually a, a reversal of the creation narrative. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because something that struck me, and I can't remember if it's in six or if, in seven, if it's in seven, but it's uh, the, the narrator or the narrator of the story talking about how everybody is, you know, the, the floodwaters are coming and um, I'm trying to pull this up, uh, but that there was breath that went from their nostrils because of the, the waters rising. Right. And the thing that struck me about that is, you know, in, in the creation narrative, we see God breathing life through the nostrils. Correct. And this image of what life actually is, through this part of the text, at least we have is always tied with breath, mm-hmm. and so which just, is spirit, yeah, pneuma. So just that, that um, pointing out that you know, because if the waters are rising and it's bad enough to where you can no longer keep your mouth above water, but your nostrils are breathing in right. water, also, it's just a very striking image. Yeah, and I think so. For me, when reading this, I I tend to go to the spot of and God's spirit was removed that God withdrew God's spirit and so life could no longer go on in some way right that the spirit of God uh, was removed from us uh, from humanity and so this picture of God undoing uh, creation is is really really fascinating uh, especially when you realize that you know, you made the comment about Noah was okay. God found an okay family. And, and that's on the nose, right? Because the text says that Noah was righteous within his own generation, uh, which, of course, the rabbis have a field day with that, right? The rabbis uh, read that and say that had Noah been born within any other generation, that he would not have been considered righteous. Uh, that, to me, is such an interesting read there that uh, because I don't know about you but I have a singular description of what is righteous like what is righteousness is one thing but seemingly there's a spectrum on which God or a curve on which God grades based on the generation that you're in which to me is so interesting it's yeah I mean it's generous generous yeah to say the least and and i think that's helpful because you know i've often wondered are we so far removed from the faith that existed in the day of jesus that we could never actually uh, achieve a righteous life because we don't even know what a daily life of a christian in uh, the care of jesus looked like right so how can i even be righteous and this notion that, uh, you know, that we are righteous within our own generation. I saw you smirking there. What's, what's going just on? I was wondering, you're, you know, you're asking, you know, can I be righteous in this generation? I'll have your prayers moved a mountain, Donald. Well, don't go all Dostoevsky on me. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, they haven't. My faith the size of a mustard seed has yet to grow into fruition. But, you know, it's... <laughs> This is, for me, it's it's also significant, right? So a lot of the, Noah becomes associated in later rabbinic writings, and this is a gut punch for all of us in Christendom, 
Noah becomes associated later with Christian thinking, right? Uh, if you notice, Noah isn't one of the great people of our faith, right? When you list the great people of our faith, when was the last time you heard Noah listed? Well, every time I've heard where it starts, it starts with Abraham. Right. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the prophets, right? So those are listed as the great people of our faith. Noah is never listed, yet Noah is the only one that survives. Noah becomes the new Adam, basically, in this story. Sure. Because Depends on which Enoch you're talking about. Cain's Enoch or, uh, 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 sorry. No, it's okay. There's two Enochs right in the first couple genealogies. Yeah. And one I'm, is not this. They're very different. I'm referring to Noah's dad that walked with God. Right. And then was no more. Yes. Um, right. So Enoch's not remembered, but, but particularly Enoch, I would say it makes somewhat sense to me that Enoch's not remembered because Enoch gets a single line in the text. True. Right. There's no narrative. We don't know anything about Enoch. Noah takes up a huge chunk of text uh, comparatively to a lot of people in Scripture. And for him not to be remembered uh, in this way is, is interesting to me. But what the critique is about him and is a critique on Christendom is that unlike Abraham, who begged for the salvation of all the people, Noah was only worried about his own individual salvation. He was not worried about it. The highest and most important thing to Noah was his own salvation. And I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, you know, personal salvation was the goal. It is the only goal for some. Right. I mean, for many people in the church still, this idea of personal salvation is, at the end of the day, the thing that we are striving for. And Abraham was looking for communal salvation. He was looking for the salvation of all people uh, and not in a uh, conversion uh, methodology, but instead of uh, standing before God, pleading for God's mercy for and for the salvation of all people. Whereas Noah doesn't seem to go, he has over a hundred years building this ark and we don't have any part of the story that implies that Noah goes and starts preaching to the people and trying to convince them to change their ways, to set aside their evil in order for God to delay the flood or for God to not bring the flood. Instead, Noah dutifully makes the ark and then uh, does not seem to reach out to the people around him. Yeah, he doesn't have the uh, the Evan Almighty moment where he I, brings I, it. The <laughs> the sequel to Bruce Almighty, right? Uh, Isn't this the the Evan Almighty where he has a a goatee very similar to mine? Something like that. Yeah. It's uh he you know it's Steve Carell's character is living the the Noah story, and he brings and you know in the in the end he ends up bringing all of his neighbors, even the ones that weren't great onto the ark mm. so that they could be saved from this damn, that burst. So that's all. Got it. Yeah. So there isn't no Evan almighty moment, right? Uh, Abraham, or I'm sorry, Noah just goes on to the boat. Uh, and it also is this, there's another piece here that I think is interesting that we might miss in the text where God commands him to go into the boat and Noah doesn't actually go on to the boat 
until the flood waters start to rise. So it seems as though Noah is maybe quite literally dragging his feet about even getting on the boat, that in some way Noah is still so attached to the world, right? That, that Noah would rather test to see if there is going to be a flood than whether or not, uh, yeah, it just seems like Noah is conflicted here. And not because Noah, uh, because of morality, is saying, I'm not getting on there and rescuing myself. Uh, I'm going to go down with the ship, kind of like Moses when God says, I'm going to kill everyone and start over. And Moses is like, well, then strike my name out as well. I don't get the impression that that's what's going through Noah's mind here. Instead, it seems more so like Noah is hesitant because Noah doesn't even trust God. Yeah, it's like, you know, wow, boy, this rain sure is, it's falling. <laughs> yeah, it's ankle high, huh? <laughs> oh, boy. Huh. Well, for all we know, this is the first time Noah or anyone's ever seen rain. Fact, yeah. Uh, because we don't have the indication that it had rained prior to this. Yeah, very true. So it's just like, wow, this, this water sure is coming up from the ground and the sky pretty hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so he waits and waits and waits and then finally goes on to the, the boat. Yeah. Uh, so it says when he goes on the boat, it says Noah and his sons and Noah's spouse and Noah's son's spouses go onto the boat. And the rabbis also pick up on this because uh, God, uh, when God talks to Noah, God talks to Noah in terms of Noah and Noah's spouse and Noah's sons and their spouses. So God connects the uh families, the, the marriages, if you will. And whenever it seems that the narrator is talking uh, or Noah is in control of the situation, Noah separates the, the males in the household from the women in the household. And, so, and it's not until after God promises to never destroy the world again that we see the language shift back again to Noah and his spouse and Noah's sons and their spouses. And so, uh, again, the rabbinic reading on this was that Noah and his family refused to uh, be fruitful and multiply until God promised to never do this again, which is really, That's really interesting. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we have a lot of really intriguing things in this story that uh, when we take our time, read through it, and, and listen to uh, the words that are being used and chosen in very specific situations, it begins to fill out the story a little bit more, unlike where uh, we're so used to this uh, maybe a, a concise children's story of this that we miss a lot of the picture, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the uh, the complicated and conflict that goes into this story. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's move past the, so the flood happens. Right. Um, a raven is sent out, then a dove, and then. Right. And this dove would be, again, uh, re reminiscent of the Spirit of God hovering or fluttering, which is bird language from Genesis 1, over the formless and void. And so once again, we have a picture of the Spirit of God. We see it in the baptism. We talked about this in one of our episodes uh, yeah. earlier about how the Spirit of God descends like a dove over the baptism. And so 
we again have this moment of God, uh, a bird, and water, and a creation narrative. Because all of a sudden, we're going to start to see the recreation of the earth. The baptism, according to First Peter, of the earth is uh, rescinding. It's going away. And so we again have this new creation about to form. Yep. And so um, the ark gets stuck between a mountain and the floodwaters continue to go down until the land is now dry. And his family, Ernola, disembarks along with the family. The fear of man is struck into the hearts of animals. We're mm-hmm. given permission to now eat animals, mm-hmm. but we're also given a very strict warning The about, you know, God will call into account uh, if you are if you strike another person down, if mm-hmm. you kill another person, um, and then the I, I I would love to get your your perspective on on that and the um, not eating meat while the lifeblood is still in it. Mm. Yeah. So this you know you touch on this uh, with your last statement. This is also a huge transition because life was in the breath in the text up until this moment, and now life transfers to the blood. Yeah. And so now it's lifeblood, whereas prior to this moment, it was in the breath. And I think that that's uh, intriguing. I really don't have anything on that piece of it transitioning from the breath to blood, uh, and so if any of our listeners have any insight, I'd love to hear it because I'm not sure what exactly goes on there other than I know that Abel's bloods cry out uh, to God uh, from the ground. And so this idea of the blood still having in some way an ongoing existence exists in the uh, memory in some way of Israel. And so this plays into why an animal cannot have its lifeblood uh, still in it, right? That in some way we have to give that back to God. And the way we give that back to God is we don't consume it. We put that back into the earth. The earth is the Lord's. And so we give that and we pour that back. And that maintains and goes on through the offertory system, right? That you would pour out the blood. Uh, at most, some blood is sprinkled on the altar. But for the most part, the blood is poured out uh, and return to God, and that life is completely removed from the animal. Uh, and I think that that's significant and important uh, for us in thinking about when we eat, when we kill for consumption, that we must recognize that that life is not ours to take, uh, but instead it is we must give that life back to God, that that life belongs to God. You know, we're so far removed from our food process systems, right? And so we don't even care so much about how animals are killed or what happens in the process. Uh, and, you know, even for those of us who are concerned about those things, uh, you know, it's more of a uh, armchair compassion than it is any real action that we take. Some people change to vegetarianism uh, because of such things, right? And so this picture is that God makes a covenant, actually, in this passage, when God makes a covenant to not ever kill humans again, God also makes a covenant with the animals here. And 
we as being empowered over them are also responsible for enacting and participating and carrying forward that covenant on God's behalf with these animals. So if you think about our food systems that we have today, in many ways breaks the very covenant that God had made with these animals in these, in this, these chapters of Genesis. Yeah. You know, I remember when um, the first time we were doing this study, uh, how much of an impact it had on me. Like I was freaking out because I love my steak rare mm. and I was trying to like, you know, figure out the, ju- you, you know, I think that that might be something that some of our listeners might be, you know, going through or listening about for the first time, you know, what is, what does this all this mean for daily actions today? Yeah. Because I think that this is the struggle of Christianity is trying to figure out how, at least modern Western Christianity is trying to figure out how, you know, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, how all of that plays into life today. I don't think it's a struggle. I just think we ignore it. Well, I but I think that part of that struggle like just eventually leads to ignoring it because we have no idea what to do with any of this stuff. Well, because our Christianity is so trite that uh, maybe I should use the word quaint, uh, right? It's so simplistic. It's so bumper sticker theology that uh, we unfortunately don't imagine that our Christianity requires us to wrestle with very uh, significant changes in the way that we do what would seem to be ordinary things in our life, right? Uh, For most Christians, we might uh, stop doing bigger things, right? Maybe like whatever it might be. I don't even want to list things. That always gets annoying, right? (laughs) Uh, But it's the big things. But we don't think anything has to do with our Christianity rarely ever invades our food pantry. Our Christianity rarely invades our closet. Our food pantry, uh, I'm sorry, our Christianity rarely invades our sock drawer, right? And so when we think about the mundane, when we think about ordinary time, ordinary experience, rarely are we Uh, placing a lens of Christianity over that time to engage it. And I think what happens is when we read these stories in the Torah, we're, we're left with realizing that there isn't a part of our life that God is not in some manner, uh, interested in, not because God is nosy or voyeuristic, but rather because If we were to live in a manner that reflects godliness, even those mundane decisions we make can bring about huge change in the world and for our communities and neighbors. And so then we're left with, well, what does me eating a medium rare or a rare steak have to do with the well-being of my neighbors? And I'd say quite a bit. Um, And a lot of it comes with, if we're not even willing to give up a rare steak because it might offend God and God's covenant with animals. What things are we willing to give up? Right? I mean, if, if we can't give up bacon because, well, who can live without bacon? 
and the text says that uh, pigs are unclean, right? And I'm not trying to get into a debate of whether or not as Gentiles that we're obligated to follow the dietary laws. I'm just saying that if our defensiveness around pork or rare steaks or whatever it might be is so great, and that's such a simple thing to give up, right? Then what can we actually say we are willing to change? You know, can you really fight for justice if you are someone who there is no way, you know, nothing could ever cause me to give up bacon, right? Yeah. Are you really going to interject yourself in a, in a situation in which uh, justice is necessary uh, in some uh, big, meaningful, and consistent way? And believe me, there's exceptions to that rule, and I'm sure there are several people that are going, well, I eat bacon, and I still stand up for X, Y, and Z. And certainly, but it's an indicator to us, right? Because if we can't do the small things, right, those who do small things will be given more responsibility and the more responsibility we do we've given even more responsibility so (laughs) uh man that was a lot as usual um so we're gonna take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back All right, and welcome back. So, stretch your legs for a moment, had some water. Uh, Don, let's jump back into what you were saying. So, um, you indicated, or, yeah, you indicated that, you know, somebody that isn't willing to give up bacon might not be willing to, like, how much justice are you willing to show? So, can you just clarify, because we don't want to start a shitstorm over this and because some of these ideas people might be being introduced to for the first time. And this is something that you've sat with for at least a decade. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think to be clear, I think it's, I think it's important for us to recognize it's an indication, right? So kind of like if you, uh, an indication of longevity of life is someone who exercises regularly, eats healthy, uh, maintains a good stress level, all of those things, uh, that, that is an indication of longevity. Someone who smokes cigarettes or has a poor diet is an indication of less longevity. However, many people who have uh, those indications of lower longevity outlive other people who have all the indications of a healthy life. That to be said is that all they are is indications. Right. It doesn't necessarily equal true. If you smoke and you eat uh, poorly, it doesn't mean that you're always going to die before someone who lives a healthy life. You just increase your odds by being healthy. And so the same thing is true if we start following these ideas that God has about the best ways to live in the world and participate in the world, that uh, that creates an indication of the wellness of our faith and therefore might even help us to journey further and deeper into our faith in more meaningful ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So for those of us that are starting to align our behave and our believe with this, um, this isn't uh, like a condemnation. This is a, these are things that we need to be thinking about as we're moving forward in our faith. And we're reading these, portions that we 
haven't read through this lens before. Like there are some sure. things during your journey towards justice that will be given up. Yeah. So what are you willing to give up? What freedoms are you willing to give up for those that do not have the same amount of freedoms to have equal freedom? Right. Unless your liberation is bound up in the liberation of others, then uh, you're not actually participating in liberation. Yeah. So it's not so much can you liberate others and not still have a stake? It's what areas are holding you back? Right. Does well, that... even thinking about, so like the stake, for instance, uh, with the with the rare and the blood in it. So we have discovered through, I would hate to know what means, that bludgeoning a cow in the head uh, to kill it will keep more of the blood in the actual muscle, therefore the meat, and therefore uh, change uh the way because the blood gives it weight and flavor um whereas a uh a kosher slaughtering of an animal actually drains the blood out and you know i could be mistaken on this but at least up until recent and when i say recent i'm not sure how many years uh a kosher slaughtering of an animal was the most humane way to put an animal to death um, because it was considered to be the least painful way to do it. And so in some ways, even our desire to have a nice, bloody, rare steak is to say that my desire for... uh, you know, an Instagram photo of my meal is more important than the treatment of these animals. Well, I think also something that, and I might be mistaken with this, but, you know, if you're talking about the kosher care of of what eventually becomes your food, but so if you're talking about the kosher care of animal, what is the most humane way to kill an animal so that we can eat is still taking creation into account with this, whereas what's the best way that I can kill an animal and still maintain the most blood and right. You know, and I'm being hypocritical in this because, uh, the, I care. (laughs) There are times where I care more about what's the fattiest, rarest piece of meat I can get at this steakhouse versus when I actually sit back and I ask myself, what do I care about more? Do I care about more about the food that I'm intaking or do I care about the treatment of animals more? Right. That's a a hypocritical stance. Sure. And so one of the things that we should be struggling through with this is how is creation being cared for in this is really going to wreck the way that we live. Oh, and this is where we would rather just say, you know what? I think you're asking too much of me. And so I would rather just go back to my easy Christendom that doesn't require me to even think about the food at the restaurant and how it ends up on my plate and how those animals were treated or cared about. And, and I think that we've been told that that's okay. And yes, you might be righteous within your own generation while doing that. Um, but is that our goal? Is our goal to only be considered righteous within our generation or do we want to be righteous in general? Yeah. So real quickly, 
it was it was believed that part of the reason that animals were now given to us as food was that in some way this would uh, assuage our desire to murder that instead of killing others we would slaughter animals and so our murderous tendencies as human we would be able to take out on an animal instead of another person Uh, and so that in some way it would curb our lust for blood Uh, and it's really interesting because I'd be curious to see that as food has been removed more and more from the individual household, right? Like, and I'm talking about like cows and pigs and, yeah. you know, uh, hens and chickens and such, yeah. right? That the more that we are uh, removed from the process of the death of an animal in order to provide food for our household, I, I'd be curious to see how that is played into us psychologically when it comes to violence. Uh, towards each other uh, because if you actually have to participate in the taking of the life of a, a lamb or a chicken or a cow in order to provide food for your household how much does that impact the way that you then think about life and you think about all of these things and the more that we've you know children uh, you know I've seen a video where kids are like shown chicken nuggets and and then they're shown how the chicken nuggets are made and it doesn't even phase the kids because they're like, eh, I like chicken nuggets, but they're not there to participate in the death of the chicken. They just see the parts of the chicken that it's made out of. And I just wonder how much it changes. So like people that grow up on a farm who still slaughter their own animals for food or someone who grows up in a house where they hunt for the majority of their food, um, how much that might change the way that they engage in violence. Um, so anyhow, it's just an idea or a thought. I don't have anything to back it up. I can tell you, though, that Judaism, ancient Judaism, didn't have hunters, really, because hunters were considered to not care about God's concern for animals because you could never guarantee a clean kill. And so they, you don't read about, and oftentimes if someone's referred to as a bowman or a hunter, it's, it's a negative description of the person. Uh, I think Nimrod is called yeah. a, a hunter, uh, and Nimrod is considered one of the most evil people in the text, right? Um, Ishmael uh, is a hunter, and uh, though, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that debate over Islam and Judaism and Christianity, but uh, that has carried weight in, in its reading as well. Man, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, so we spent the, pretty much the entire episode talking about uh, the flood narrative. Not yeah. pretty much. We did spend the entire episode talking about the flood right. narrative. Um, which, you know, since we've now focused on this part, it gets, I'm a little sad that we haven't gotten into the uh, uh, Tower of Babel. Yeah, but you know what? Hey, maybe we'll do a, a second portion. Well, let me let me give a a nugget, <laughs> not a chicken nugget though. Let me let me give a nugget that might help people uh, a little bit in reading this section of the text. I would argue that this section uh, between Genesis one and Genesis, uh, the end of Genesis eleven, is really the prelude or the once upon a time for the Abrahamic story. 
that it's setting up the Abrahamic story. This isn't about uh, about humanity and creation. This is about setting up who Abraham is and what is the story of God with this Hebrew people, right? And so this is the the intro, the prelude, um, and we see an escalation in the garden. Humanity wants to be like God, right? Mm-hmm. Then we have uh, in uh, the flood, humanity ignores God, right? Yeah. And then in the Tower of Babel, they build a siege tower to go and make a name for themselves because now they're going to conquer God. And so we have this progression of story of humanity. Humanity wants to be like God. Humanity then begins to ignore God. And then humanity decides we can even conquer God. And this is the story that's leading up to this Abrahamic moment. And I think that that's that's a progression we don't think about when reading the text because we treat them all as different weekend Sunday school lessons as opposed to what is happening. This is that short moment. It's that scroll before Star Wars that sets up the movie of Star Wars, right? And that's so important for us to kind of have a fast track into the storyline, right? Though movies can be made about what took place before Star Wars. We can debate whether or not any movies were actually made. Oh, Uh, stop it. uh, But it's important because it fast tracks us into the story. And that is what's happening here. This is the setting in which Abraham shows up on the scene. This is the scene. This is the moment in which Luke Skywalker shows up on the scene, right? This is, this is that moment. And now Abraham, right? What a great buildup. What a great opening scroll of the text, right? And we can play off that scroll and Torah or whatever. My dad jokes at the end of the episode here. But uh, so anyhow, that's that's what I would say to encourage us to just think about the progression and the aggressiveness of humanity. And then all of a sudden you have someone named Abram who is different. And Abram is going to approach the world and faith differently than the people before him. And that's where we leave off. It's awesome. It's a great moment. Yeah. Um, And with that being said, I have been your co-host, George. I'm your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. See ya. All right. Well, that does it for this week. Um, Everybody, hope you enjoyed it. And next week, we are going over Torah Portions 3, which will be in the show notes, where we talk about Abram. If you have any questions, don't forget you can email us evangelbros at gmail.com. Shoot us a question on Twitter at evangelbro or Facebook and Instagram at evangelbros. And if you have time, uh, be great if you stop by wherever you are listening to this podcast from and give us a five-star rating review. It really helps us uh, reach a larger audience, and it's just a nice feeling. Well, take care, everyone.